Hi, this is Mike Metcalf. This time talking about social networking or networking theory. A network with purpose is a system, and any system is a network. But I want to focus now on networks to help us problem solve. And I've suggested that we use imitation theory to offer a novel and insightful way of problem solving. Justification for this has been given elsewhere, but it is empirical and based in philosophy out of the psych and sociology and organisational literature. Imitation theory suggests that the what we'll do is imitate other people. If you have a problem and you're looking for a solution, you look around for ideas for how other people, or the successful, have solved the problem previously. If we're going to use imitation theory, then we're going to need a lot of wide-ranging sources. I mean, not only must we have some understanding of what the respected and successful do, but we should also have some understanding of what a lot of people do from a wide range of, of sources. These do need to be credible sources, credible that they actually do it and it works, and credible that uh, people respect them and things. Although, if they're not, then you simply might need to remix them and, and adapt them in, in some way. These sources of ideas for what you might do, you also need to be able to talk to people about them. You need to be able to observe them, and you need to be able to ask questions and say, why do you do that, and how does that work, and what about this? So you need a wide range of sources that you can talk to, that there is some sort of relationship or communication relationship. People working behind closed doors and won't talk to you, it's, it's very hard to sort of to learn their ideas and see if they're useful to you. There's now quite a lot of theory that the, the more networked you are, the, the more contacts you have, and they have to be the right sort of contacts, used in the right sort of way, the more successful you'll be. You can turn that around. If you look at the social networks of successful people, they're always very impressive. Even people who purport to be loners, you find, have massive networks. Now, even in imitation theory, we say we need sources of ideas, we need people we can talk to. Then we, we're connected with social networking, aren't we? We're saying that a person who has an awful lot of social networks has most likely got a lot of sources of ideas. So I'm making a connection here, then, between imitation theory and social networking. If you just sort of reflect internally yourself, you've only really got your own limited experience of what you've seen and heard. Whereas if you can make contact with other people who've made contact with other people who've made contact with other people, you have a sort of exponential growth in the amount of, of sources and experiences you can draw on to come up with something that might be viable for your work group will, of course, be a social network. I mean, quite a clustered and tight one, I assume. So they see each other every day and work together and talk to each other every day. That's considered to be a sort of a tight knowledge cluster where you know each other and you can share information easily. People outside the group uh, have been very important in networking and someone needs to manage those connections outside the group. Again, you can see how they're sort of they're slightly different, a little bit weaker. One assumes unless you spend all day 
with people outside the group. Uh, you won't get the same interaction. Sometimes, actually, this does happen with say, salesmen or go-betweens, where they can actually spend more time with another group. Although they're paid in one group, they spend a lot of time with the other group. And then, then they will be in a sort of a tight network cluster with the, the second group. And salesmen can do this with customers sometimes. They spend a lot of time, more time with their customers than they do with their own organisation. Each member of your group will know people outside the group. So knowing people in your group is knowing people outside the group. So you can see how you can sort of get these massive sort of social network connections. And in fact, employing people who have a lot of connections is a fairly standard practice or have you know, a particular set of experiences, an unusual set of experiences, an unusual network of friends can be done purposely to extend the networking of your group. Got to be careful here, when I talk about social networking, I'm not talking about sort of Facebook and Twitter. These um, are useful tools and mechanisms for managing the connections between people and building the connections between people. But as social networking I'm talking about is the fact that you know other people, you can go and talk to them, hopefully, who knows who. And we have to sort of look a bit more carefully what we mean by know and talk to. Before defining what we mean by a social network, if you map out, this is a who knows who network, where the nodes are people, and if you know someone, there's a line between, you typically find it doesn't come out uniformly, that you get these little clusters which are linked together, and some of them aren't linked together. And so the language we're going to use here is small worlds, meaning a tight cluster of people all know each other and talk to each other regularly, and then you can get a weak tie or a what's sometimes called a structural hole to another cluster. So in your work group, you can think, well, that's a little cluster. And they might know somebody interstate who does something similar that you ring up every now and then, and that would be another cluster. And the, the structural hole or the weak tie would be the fact that, that you email them sort of once a month to talk to them or something else. So there might be other departments in your organisation or funders or suppliers or customer groups or something could represent the other small groups. So I think just trying to get in your mind that there are there's going to be sort of local intensive sort of everyday connections and then these wider ones that maybe you less frequently contact or you don't know that well but at a push you could ring them up and uh, talk to them. So members of your group might say that, well, the work group is a bit of a social network cluster, but uh, one member of your group might say, well, I'm also an accountant, um, graduated uh, from university in South Australia, and as a result of that, there's a whole group of other people I know, my ex-student friends or something or other. Or there might be family. One member might have connections to family, or they might have connections to their previous employer, which are all sort of clustered together. So these represent the weak ties of, say, sometimes called structural holes between clusters. When drafting a social network with people as the nodes or the dots and the reason they know other people as the lines, there's obviously lots of different ways of deciding what the lines are, what the connections are. I mean, one level it might simply be a relative of this person is a relative or isn't a relative. This person knows this person. 
This person has this person's phone number in their phone. This person has, has met this person. This person has worked with this person. You can draw a social network for whatever you want. The sort of one we're going to be interested, though, with work groups is saying, I am connected to this other person. If I feel I could go up to them and say, here's a bit of a problem I've got. Can you, have you got any thoughts on what I might do? So it's a sort of, um, can you give me advice? Have you heard of this problem? I'd extend that to somebody just saying, have you heard this rumor or this thing that's heard? You know, here's a bit of advice that might be of interest to you, a sort of heads up type of comment. Might be that you could go into a coffee shop and sit down and two or three people and you go to one and say, how's it going? And they say, oh, great, we've just got this particular problem at work and da, 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 or we've just brought this new machine and it's great and... So someone you feel you could talk to casually about work-related issues. I'm trying to distinguish someone who would give you an hour or two hours of your time from somebody who would give you a minute or two. I think the sort of network we're drawing is that if they would give you an hour or two every day, they would much well be part of the small world's cluster. If you would casually go up to them and, and you speak for a few minutes but then feel that, that was enough of their time, then there would be a weak tie. Business networks, I think, and not, I'm only about, I've worked with this person or I know this person or something, but I feel I could contact this person and have a conversation with them. I could uh, mention my problem and they could say something. I think you've got to sort of extend it to, told someone with a problem, they would go, oh dear, that's a bit of a problem, to someone who would say, well, have you thought about this and have you thought about that? People who are going to give you advice or people you can ask advice from, or people who would warn you of something they thought was of, of relevance to you, of some interest to you, some advantage to you. Now, if you say to people, important part of the business world is developing networks, they might think that's a little bit socially awkward. It's like pretending to make friends with people when you're not really making friends with them. But I, I think those um, who do well in the business world have, have learned to deal with this problem and made a distinction between... These are my friends, and I might talk to my friends about my work, but here are people who are colleagues. I'm quite willing to talk to them socially or go places with them, but they really are sort of work colleagues. And, and developing a group of people that you feel you could talk to about work that are sort of separate from the sort of people you'd invite around your house for tea on Sunday or to your daughter's wedding or something can be kept separate, although there'll be a bit of overlap. You get some consultants who are very good at merging their social relationships and their work relationships. But when I say managing a work group requires you to network, I mean it building up a group of people who trust you, who will talk to you, will give you some of their time, and who are useful to talk to will give you some useful information. And one assumes in return you'll give them some useful information. So these are sort of knowledge-sharing, work-related, knowledge-sharing relationships. Most business people are willing to develop these and understand they need them, you need them, and there's a sort of general agreement that everybody's interested to do it. That's why people join things like Rotary and Lions and Masons and all these other sort of little groups or even the women's support groups, um, women's careers, you can talk to people about work-related issues. 
the language used is that you should build relationships with people both within your work group and outside your work group and encourage your work group members also to bring to build professional working advisory knowledge sharing relationships with other people and the more you do this the, the, the language is that you build your social capital Social's um, a little bit unfortunate, I suppose, as a term. You might sort of say your knowledge networks, your sourcing knowledge networks. Your, uh, I mean, capital is obviously meant to be like instead of financial capital, you have a sort of a, a knowledge network, which is like having capital. So the knowledge network is meant to be a system or a network that you can use when you want to talk to people about a problem. So you have access to a lot of advice about how to do things. I remember we were saying that if you do that and you go to people and they say, well, we do it this way, we do it that way, and you think, oh, that's a good idea, I could do that. So mimicking requires you to have lots of sources, to be well-networked, to be able to go and get these ideas for how you might run your organisation. Do remember that successful people usually have a very large number of social networks or social capital or if you want to call them knowledge networks, business knowledge networks, that's fine. If you think of a politician, you, I'm sure if you, you go to a politician and you realise that he knows or she knows an awful lot of people. They purposely go out of their way to meet people, know people, talk to people, people of, of some importance and they... Being a politician is a career in sort of handshaking and meeting and how are you and what's your problem and what do you think and how can I help you. It's that sort of greasing the pole sort of job, isn't it? It's oiling the machine. It's a, it's a go-between people and uh, sorting out their, their problems. Politicians clearly understand this sort of knowing and knowledge network transfer process. If you're the CEO of a half-decent organisation, you're going to know a lot of people, aren't you? You're going to know your employees and your suppliers and your customers and, and other CEOs. And a very large part of your job will be to keep out these networks of uh, knowledge that you can go to. I mean, lawyers and accountants will be included in that. Designers and um, uh, even retired business people. Or, okay, they're a big part of the job, wouldn't it? If you take famous... Scientists, Newton, Galileo, what you'll find about their stories is that although the impression is given that they sort of lock themselves in a room and do a lot of experiments, they might have done, but they're also very well-connected people. You find there's an awful lot of letters and correspondence going back and forth between them and other people. Darwin, this almost sort of, I think this took about hundreds of letters a day that he sent to different people. And Newton had people all around the empire, all around the world, sending him data on tides and moons and scientific information. He's like the spider in the middle of a very large web. Steve Jobs, his ability to go into the music industry and say, let's sort of reorganise it all using MP3 and iTunes. and It's because he knew an awful lot of people. He knew people who knew people and very heavily networked. You see the business networks of people like Apple and, and Microsoft, they're absolutely massive, the IT. Everybody knows everybody. Silicon Valley is a very well-networked, knowledge transfer, everybody knows everybody sort of network. Um, it's going to be an important part of the job. 
You understand why I'm interested in it under imitation theories? Because I'm saying they will give you the ideas that you can imitate and use and utilize. It's possible then to see a lot of what you do as networking. If you go on a training course and meet people, or if you join Rotary's Alliance and meet people, if you go and talk to suppliers and creditors and customers, you can see it as a networking exercise, you know, keeping their names and numbers and ring them and being able to ring them up if you have a particular problem or an issue or they can ring you. Now you can see how weddings might be a networking opportunity and I, I don't mean that badly but if you've got a situation where you have a lot of small businesses and there are a lot of small family businesses and they're all interconnected which is something that was very typical in, in the Mediterranean and Italy and Greece and I think it's very typical in, in Taiwan and other countries is that people give the business to their family members so you end up with these very large sort of business families where they're, they're supplying and customers to each other in a sort of elaborate network, informal trust network rather than a contract arrangement. So that when a wedding occurs, there's an opportunity for all these people to get together and sort of thank each other and reassure each other and anything else. And in fact, if the wedding brings together other families who've got other connections, then you're extending your family connections, family ties. It's a, it's a this sort of merging between social, family, and business is a sort of an obvious way that's been used over the centuries to extend networks. Again, I'm, I'm trying to distinguish, I'm not saying that one should be insincere here, but you can see how that if you meet someone socially, you can work out whether in fact there's an opportunity to develop a, a knowledge-sharing business relationship with that person. And the same are true of parties or any sort of community event. So you, there are some people who know that whenever they go to a party full of people, that okay, part of their job there is to introduce themselves to people and explain what they do and try and work out if there's anybody in the room who might in the future somehow or other be a useful person to talk to about their work. Social intelligence, in the way I want to use it, means it's a person who, who can deal with social situations in a mature manner. They're not they're sort of inadequate socially. They're not somebody who, when they meet somebody, scares them or appears timid or is overbearing or underbearing or too quiet or too noisy. It's somebody who knows how to interact with people correctly so that they, they do become a source of knowledge sharing. It's a, it's a sort of skill. I mean, there's some people who know how to sort of deal with their family and uh, deal with the troubles of their family and other people who just can't cope. In the business world, when you're managing a group, you do need a lot of social intelligence. You need empathy. You need understanding. You need to know how to talk to people. You need to when to listen and when to talk and what you can do and what you can't do to be socially acceptable to that group. So you remain at the right point between friend and colleague and someone who can share knowledge. Now, you don't want to be in a state where everybody's not talking to everybody and you don't want to be in a state where you feel that everybody has to be desperately in love with each other before they can work together or something. So being able to hold uh, relationships at an appropriate level, appropriate people at the appropriate level, if they are your, your partner then you, it would obviously be a different relationship from if they are a business relationship. 
but being able to manage those and sort of keep people on side and, and overcome the differences is a particular skill. One worth developing. But now, can we move on, or rather shift our perspective? So I've said networks are a useful source of ideas, so you can imitate ideas that come out of a network. I assume you'd remix them, it wouldn't be just straight imitations. But if you shift your perspective a bit, you begin to realise that means that a network is comprised of people who are imitating each other. If you're in the network, you most likely have something in common, that is the way you think or what you do. So you can think of a network as a bunch of, or crowd of, people who imitate each other in a certain way. So in your family, they might imitate each other as family members, you could be in a network that imitates each other as physicists, and you could be in another network that imitates each other's behavior as a sort of social party-going network. A network is a bunch of imitating nodes. It's what holds the network together. Once you have, or are part of, a network, a knowledge-sharing business network, you start to find certain sort of group effects work. So there's all sorts of language for describing this, things like swarm intelligence or crowdsourcing. You've got this sort of informal, almost tempted to say, virtual organisation of individuals who aren't really part of any official legal organisation. So if you know a lot of people, say from your industry, you can talk to and go to with problems... You can sort of say, well, it isn't a formal organisation, it has no legal identity, but we know each other, we interact, and if something happens, we, we act as a group, we either encourage it or discourage it or, or, or something or other. It is like, a bit like a swarm of ants, isn't it? Being able to manage a particular problem. You can see this sort of network, this knowledge network, working as, as a sort of body of interacting parts, I say, a bit like a sort of in, invisible organisation. Interestingly, it, it doesn't really have formal leaders. I mean, there might be certain people that have a lot of respect and have a lot of say and people listen to, but I think you've got to think of these knowledge networks held together by ideas. And yet, imitation makes the network function as well as it provides... Sorry, the network provides the source of imitation. So there's a sort of recursive thing going on here. So when you think about these colonies of ants or the birds flying, they're imitating each other. They've, they're doing much the same sort of thing. And that's sort of how the whole thing holds together. That's why they want to talk to each other, because they, they want to th come up with ideas that they could use themselves. So you can see his imitation is a sort of glue that holds the whole thing together. You remember the complexity theory that it's saying when you look at a swarm or a, um, a shoal of fish or birds flocking, that what basically is happening is that each individual bird is working to a few simple rules. And... 
We've said that rules sometimes are things like don't get on the outside of the crowd because you might get eaten if something turns up like an eagle or a shark or something for fish. Um, so try and stay inside the crowd a little bit. And also don't get too close to everybody else and don't sort of keep bumping into them. Otherwise they'll attack you. Um, I think also, especially with higher order animals like human beings, that you can have a simple rule like sort of look around and see what the successful ones are doing and do the same thing yourself. You, I think birds and fish could do this, but I think humans could particularly do it. And when I say look around and see what the successful ones seem to be doing, uh, for humans I'm saying you sort of copy the idea or the concept, maybe not physically exactly what they're doing. So you can see with this ants, uh, you know, getting across, making a bridge out of their bodies and getting across, how you could see that one or two would start to get on top and try and reach across, and then a few others would try to do the same, and people would say, oh, that sort of works, I'll do that, and do that. you do this. And that seems to be working, and, and then maybe when they've seen it once, the next time they'll do it again. Basically, each, each individual is following quite a simple rule of something like do what the successful ones are doing, and it ends up in appearing to be intelligent behaviour from the swarm, despite the fact there's nobody directly in charge. And you can think sometimes this might happen in industry, or if you think of an industry as being a swarm or a network, it, it's able to respond to things like environmental changes or new technology without really having a leader, because it, it's, it's got a few basic rules that people are following, and if those few rules meant chaos and the thing fell apart, then it wouldn't be there, but if those few rules work, then the industry will survive and go on. There's a, there's a sort of classroom exercise you can do to sort of watch this sort of swarming effect. If you have a room full of, say, 50 people, and you say to everybody, find somebody else in the room... Just match up with somebody, find a sort of partner person or an opposite person, one other person. And when I say go, what I want you to do is try and make sure that there is a... Between you and the person you've chosen, you should have another human being. This is the third person. But it can, it, it can vary, but it, the, the thing is that uh, there should always be one person between you and the, the person you've paired up with. And they don't have to pair up with you, they can pair up with somebody else. And they should try and find, make sure there is somebody in the class at, at any one point in time between the two of you. And if you say go, you'll see the room sort of swirls and moves around and bunches form and clusters form and all sorts of things. And, and it's an example in complexity because the people are just following a simple rule. But if someone walked in the room, they wouldn't be able to understand why the, the, everybody in the room is behaving in the particular way they are and why there are sudden sort of shifts and runs in the room. Okay, and I think we, we're saying one of those rules has most likely got something to do with imitate the successful in a, in a, in a real live network swarm. You'll hear a lot of advice that collaboration is a good thing, cooperation, collaboration. And... You can again interpret collaboration, that is working closely with other people for everyone's mutual benefits, as another example of networking. Um, and an, and it, one assumes that if you have a collaborative network that works fairly close, it's going to be a small world's cluster. 
Collaboration is another word for a similar idea, networking, swarming, or and that sort of thing, yes? If you collaborate only in the sense that, that we have, say, different physics departments all around the world, all working on the same thing, and they sort of get together once a year and say, well, you do that, and we'll do this bit, and you do that bit, and we'll see you again next year, then they'll be collaborating, but there'll be weak ties between them. Whereas in your work group, hopefully they collaborate, but there will be fairly strong ties be between them, and therefore it will be much more of a small world cluster. Collaboration requires that we have some sort of um, ideas that, that coordinate the group together. They, we're all mimicking the same idea, copying the same idea, and that's what holds the collaboration or group together. You'll also hear advice that multidisciplinary teams work very well. They're very successful in, in designing and implementing new and novel responses to problems, particularly true in the medical profession, or the words used a lot in the medical profession, but it's also used a lot in the engineering. First thing to note is that these multidisciplinary teams mean that they're made up of people who have very different backgrounds and training. So they might have an engineer, an IT person, a health person, a social worker, an accountant, and a graphic designer or something. And the medical profession would be the different medical professions. And maybe even someone from, you know, from chemistry and biology or psychology or something. Now, you can see how imitation theory would again say, well, yes, I would expect that to be successful because you've got in the room there novel source of ideas. You're going to ideas from outside your discipline. These people in each discipline will be networked into their own profession and, and they will all provide a source of ideas that can be brought in and, and remixed into a solution for whatever needs to be done. So you can see that multidisciplinary teams, again, is just another way of networking into different disciplines because uh, you really need one, say, chemist who can sort of tell you who can act as a go-between between your problem and all other chemists. It fits in with network theory, it fits in with the empirical evidence that multidisciplinary teams are quite effective, and it also fits in with imitation theory. A new phenomenon, of course, that's growing with the rise of the internet and social networks and computers and iPhones and iPads and the whole IT revolution is the virtual organisation, of which... I think things like Wikipedia and Flickr and to some extent Facebook and Twitter are examples. I, I suspect Wikipedia is a clearer example. We need to sort of tie this in with, with networking and, and imitation theory. You'll accept that everybody who, say, puts up something on Wikipedia is networking. You're networking with the editors and the rest of Wikipedia. And you're networking in a sort of well-structured and orderly way... You are volunteering your time. Uh, one assumes you get something in return for this. Um, either you sort of feel good yourself, or um, you know you get to sell a point of view on, onto Wikipedia that you think needs to be explained. Yes, it's networking. There's a, it must be a weak tie networking because you don't spend huge amounts of time corresponding with other people. You get a few comments and feedback, and people are allowed to change what you've got. So it is a way of connecting with the outside world. The imitation theory would would say that might be enough, provided there was a way of imitating things on there, a way of sourcing ideas from there. 
if you're writing a page and other people start to join in and it makes you think about something and you do something, fine. So you can sort of see um, it, it, it working in, in a sort of so- as a source of um, imitation. Um, and and I think uh, you know if you're running your organisation, you most likely find that you you can successfully have members of your group who you physically don't meet and interact with. You only meet online and interact with. Remember that for imitation theory, this is all well and good, but it should be a source of ideas to individual members if it's going to be productive. You should see the uh, TED Talks by Matt Ridley. I think he's used the provocative title, uh, you know, Ideas Have Sex. He's talking about invention, and he's trying to point out as an archaeologist that clearly invention has accelerated. There was thousands of years where there was very, very little change in innovation, and in the last thousand years, or even hundred years, the rate of innovation has changed unbelievably rapidly. And he pushes down to social interaction, that basically people have built up knowledge networks, ways of sharing knowledge, and that has allowed ideas to mix, and you've got a lot of invention. It's a sort of a benefit of globalisation. He provides some nice historical examples we're talking about Tasmania becoming separated from the mainland and Japan being just far enough away from China to be separated and isolated and having a political process that wanted to be isolated and what happened to their technological advance when they were separated. So they just provide some nice historical examples of the importance of networking for social economic development And we're saying, or I'm saying, I suppose, that imitation theory explains why that networking is important. I have to mention rumours. There's actually been quite a lot of social network done on rumours where people would start a rumour and then watch it track through a community and see who talks to who and how fast it goes. The word rumours, of course, has got a sort of slight negative social connotation. But if you think of a rumour as someone saying... I heard something, it's a bit unconfirmed, worth checking it out. So someone might might say, I don't know, the new Apple iPhone 6 has a function that's particularly useful for, I, I don't know, checking the, uh, the technical specifications of new IT when you buy it or something. That it would be quite useful to you to, to get this phone because it uh, does these things. Now... The word rumour, I think, has got to suggest that it's not empirically tested and proven, it's been told informally, it's a sort of, I've heard this, check it out, um, thing. Yes, there's a hint of whispering, meaning, you know, let, I, it may be that's restrictive in saying that uh, only tell people you like, don't tell your enemies about this, um, otherwise they might get some sort of advantage out of it. And it might be just simply saying, well, I'm not, I'm not really sure about the sources, I'm not 100% sure, but it's an important topic, so I'm sort of mentioning it to you. Be aware that something is happening, it carries suggestions. Okay. Now, your ability to deal with rumours, whether you, you understand them, you believe them, you pass them on, when you don't pass them on, how you pass them on, whether you exaggerate them, is all part of your social intelligence. Uh, and, a, and a clever person can manage these things 
carefully. I think they want you sort of think, well, I want to hear these rumours, but I've got to be very careful that I'm, I'm not part of a process of forwarding the, the, the silly ones for on. But if there's something useful that might, that might uh, be advantageous to your group or people you like or something, then really you should be able to select and work your way through it. So, again, difficult social situation, um, but something that, yeah, we'll call social intelligence, that you, a good manager should be able to work their way through that and decide how to use it effectively. It must be fairly obvious to some people now that if you're going to spend all your time sort of listening and filtering rumours and make, making an effort to meet people and sharing knowledge and information, you really, you could spend all your life doing that and really get nothing done. It could take over your life. You um, could do very little. Is it? You hear public servants complaining that they have to go to meetings all day, so much so they never actually get anything done, but they're, you know, they're required to turn up to these meetings, listen to people, go away and go to another meeting, they listen to people... And they sort of say, well, I, uh, you know, my job seems to be to listen to people at meetings. It's a full-time job. I, I think, of course, you've got to get the balance right. There's a, you, know, you need a system which says, for a certain percentage of the time, I'm picking up ideas. For another percentage of the time, I'm applying these ideas. Now, imitation theory can help us a bit with this sort of networking fatigue. It can say, you are looking for ideas that you can use. And you'll get a lot of small business people know this intuitively. They go to meetings and they, they get cross. They're saying, well, none of this is any use to me. What, what they're saying is, I mean, the whole point of networking is that it's a source of ideas to me. And if it's not, then stop going. Um, it's a way of filtering stuff and knowing which meeting to go to and not go to. The networking is not only so that people will keep talking to you, because, of course, you can't. Might, you might go to meetings and think, well, most of this is a waste of time. It's only go and you get a brilliant idea or something, um, unexpectedly, you know, after a long period of time from some source you weren't expecting. But, yeah, I think it's important to, make, to remember that this networking um, under imitation theory is because you're looking for a source of ideas. You're not doing it for its own sake. But you can waste too much time listening. There must be a, a limit to it. It needs to be managed. There must be an optimum level, surely. I just want to come back to crowdsourcing again. This, again, is a fairly sort of modern idea made possible by the technology. So you get these websites that say, I have a job, does anybody want to do it? It's a sort of tendering jobs. Or you go to a website with a question and you get help. Okay, And it's been found that uh, crowds can often outperform experts. It, uh, experiments have been done where they ask experts uh, for advice and then they ask the miscellaneous crowd and they get better advice. Uh, the, the standard psych experiment is to guess how many beans in a, in a jar of beans, and they found that if you take the average of what the crowd says, it's better than an expert or any individual. So you can imagine a sort of little sort of classroom exercise. So crowdsourcing in some cases seems to work. I think the distinction you have to make is that if the crowd you're asking have some experience of the problem, it works. When you ask the crowd to do something that it has no experience of, and we have a case within you where Vegemite asked for a new name for cheese and Vegemite mix in a jar that it sold, and it came up with a crowdsourcing came up with a dreadful name. And of course, the, the point being is that the people I asked, the sort of you know, social young 
networking people they ask had no experience of naming things. Whereas experts that you spoke to understood, you know, what names are and they thought about names and, and they understand how names fit in and how names work. And the same has been done with forecasting and, and, and of new technologies, that when you go and ask a crowd of people and sort of try and take the average, if it's something the crowd doesn't really know about, it doesn't do particularly well because it has no experience of these things. Remember, I'm under imitation theory, that when you go to a crowd is that what you're trying to do is, is connect with people who've had lots of experiences as, and then provide you with a source of ideas to help you think about a problem. I think, again, this sort of, especially online, the idea of, of going to crowds and having a networking system where you can ask questions. Uh, there's a sort of ask.com, or there used to be one called Jeeves, where you could go and ask questions and you form a little sort of online group for, can anybody tell me this, can anyone tell me that? I suspect those are very powerful and useful tools that the modern manager needs to be able to master, and yet avoiding the fatigue problem. Let me come back as well to self-organisation, which is uh, part of uh, the swarming and the herding and the complexity theory, and sometimes called emergence, uh, the, the idea being that if you have this sort of network of people, a colony of ants or a flock of birds or social bees, that uh, surely it's a headless chook that it has uh, no sense of purpose. It's, um, it just goes round and round in circles, doesn't go anywhere. But um, we find, of course, that doesn't actually happen, that uh, flocks and, and uh, birds and uh, uh, swarms of bees and, and ants' nests do actually achieve things. If you, if you flood an ants' nest or break it up, you come back shortly, it would have rebuilt itself. And food runs out, it does move off and find new food. So, and the same when you, with, with industries. You, you think, well, they are a bit of a headless chook. But if, over time, they seem to have self-organized themselves um, around new technologies, they seem to have moved on, they've reinvented themselves. So it, it, it does seem to be possible somehow or other for these swarms of networks uh, to, to manage problems without any leadership. Um, as I say, there's the ant's nest where you can purposely do things like damage it and it gets rebuilt almost identically and yet clearly there's no, you know, there's nobody bossing people around, there's no blueprint or anything else. Uh, each individual ant must just follow some simple rule and you end up with the job done. As I touched on before, so we're saying that with networking and with businesses, that if in fact they're imitating, if they're saying, well, do what the successful ones do, or do what seems to be working and everybody copies that, then you can actually give sense to what appears to be an unstructured, unled, non-hierarchical bunch of, of ants or people working together. And in the case of human beings or an industry, that they should have certain ideas. I mean, they might be trying to improve quality. They might be trying to improve uh, work safety. Are they trying to uh, cut down on, on costs or something or other? But an industry will organise itself around certain concepts, uh, professionalisation. You get people in warehouses and transport now who say that the industry needs to professionalise, it needs to get away from the sort of bikey, hardneck, 
sort of view of transport and warehousing, and it should try and get itself, you know, to be more like logistics manager, supply chain. If you need a few mathematicians, people in suits who look like accountants and lawyers, because the industry needs to organise itself around being more professional in its image and outlook. Seeing that, uh, especially with the internet and everything else, that transport's becoming such a massive part of the modern world. So self-organisation is this idea that a, a swarm or a network can actually have structure if everybody in that network has some basic ideas or concepts, memes, that they copy from each other and they're trying to implement in their own little way. It gives intent or purpose to the swarm or network. Moving on slightly, and at risk of making things even more complicated, do note that a problem is, is networked. It's embedded in a system. If you change something, you're changing a network. You're changing elements in a network. Again, moving on, Neil Ferguson has written a book recently trying to point out, and I think usefully, that the world operates as a network, as a cooperative network of people that are working together. It's in the interest of power groups and elites to try and turn that network into a hierarchy where they're the top of the network and it, and it sort of cascades down from them. Rather than it's, a, I think, what they call a scale-free or a, a non-hierarchical network. It's just a group of people who know each other. That there are social forces trying to turn networks into hierarchies. And then there are technical forces and levelers who try to take those hierarchies down. Hierarchies seem particularly useful in warfare for organising central administration and battles, whereas science and, and other forms of knowledge might be better suited to networks rather than hierarchies. That includes uh, social and economic development. It's just an interesting point that there is this contest going on where you have to be careful of people trying to turn networks into hierarchies. Again, note the further language. If we talk about cooperation, which is so important for human survival and evolution, the reason we're successful as an animal is because we cooperate, we talk and work together in groups. That's what networks are. They're co cooperation groups. I learned a lot of my understanding of networks from... Gravelletti, who writes in the social sciences, but I'm told that uh, Albert Lassio Barbassi's book, Linked, is a good modern place to start if you're looking for a reference. As I mentioned, Neil Ferguson's book, uh, Networks and Hierarchies, provides a slightly different dimension to this. There's a lot being written about complexity in systems, and I've talked about that, how you get emergence and mimicking and, and apparent problem-solving by networks. There's more of a biological in interest. I think here we're more interested in the idea that networks are the sources of 
stuff to imitate and therefore problem solve. The complex system stuff just serves to remind you that everything is interlinked and if you change one thing in a network or a system then it has ramifications through the whole system. It's a bit like if you have a scaffolding up the side of a building and you take a few bars out or a few joints out it has an effect right the way through so what you replace it with and its relationship to the rest of the structure needs to be thought of. You can't just think of the particular bar or joint that you're working on. Put another way, context is very important when problem solving. Indeed, context or the network is so complicated that again, I suspect you need to think of any problem solving from multiple perspectives using a handful of different conceptions, which I've touched on in the sense-making episode. Okay, so I suggest that's enough for now. So your assignment. Think of a problem that you've solved recently or been involved in recently. What was the networks of people that were used to source ideas for solving that? Now that might include looking at books or online that too is a network, the fact that you can, they're not physical people you're talking to, that you get them asynchronously through the internet doesn't matter. You're still using that accumulated knowledge from elsewhere to solve your problem. But just identify the sources of your ideas or solutions. Okay, thank you very much.